sure part of the gospel reading, at least this morning, was very familiar to you. It sounded a lot like the Lord's Prayer, except that Jesus didn't have the prayer book with him, so he messed it up a bit. Of course, I'm just being foolish. Our traditional Lord's Prayer combines this, this prayer we find in Luke with another prayer of Jesus we find in Matthew and it adds a doxology at the end and that's the one that we, most of us learned in Sunday school and that we say every, every Sunday. In our reading from Luke's Gospel this morning, Jesus has been praying in a certain place that probably means that he's gone away from the disciples to pray. We, we have that recorded often. That's probably what that implies, that he was away from them. And, and when, he, when he comes back, one of the disciples asks Jesus to teach them how to pray. Now, prayer is simply communicating with God. It sounds simple enough, but often it seems like we need some assistance or instruction. And the best teacher, of course, would be Jesus. And Jesus here gives us a pattern, a plan. He teaches us how to pray. I'll follow through with your traditional form that we're more familiar with. Jesus says, when you pray, pray, our Father, which art in heaven. There we recognize our place, our position, as children of our heavenly Father. By calling ourselves children of the Father, we can come with both humility and boldness. Not demanding, but requesting in confidence that our prayers will be answered. And yet requesting even with shameless audacity, that's the impudence is the word that's used in the, in the parable of the man who goes to ask bread from his neighbor. John Calvin wrote, who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a child of God unless we had been adopted as children of God in grace in Christ? The shameless audacity, the impudence, the rashness of the man who asks for bread. Now the point of the story is not God is laying in bed mad that you're asking him. That's not the point. Okay, I can assure you that's not the point. The point is that the certainty of receiving the bread, that if you ask with boldness, you're certain to receive the bread. The same point is made in another parable of Jesus, of a woman who goes to an unjust judge who refuses to hear her case. Again, the point isn't that God is an unjust judge. He refuses to hear your case. The point is that by being persistent, you can be assured of receiving an answer. And that's only because we've been united with Christ. As our reading from Colossians said, buried with him in baptism and and raised again with him, we can come before God and call him Father. In fact, that's what Jesus, God's Son, tells us to do. And then Jesus tells us to pray that God's name will be hallowed. To hallow something is to make it holy. And of course we can't make God's name holy. But we can recognize that God is holy. And so when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we pray a prayer for others to recognize that holiness as well. Until eventually every tribe, tongue, and language will proclaim his holiness. And when will that time be? when every tribe and tongue and, and, and a nation proclaims that God is holy when God's kingdom comes. And where do you think God, Jesus goes next to God's kingdom coming? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer addresses the cause of all our human problems. 
That's because we were created to serve God. But when we serve other things in God's place, the fancy word for that is idolatry, when we serve other things in God's place, well, that's where all our spiritual and psychological and cultural and political and economic and all material problems come from. And therefore, we desperately need his kingdom to come to us. And making that request, we're asking God to extend his royal power over every part of our lives, our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, our commitments, our relationships, our professions. We're asking God to fully rule and control us so that we we are made to obey him with all our hearts and with joy. And secondly, to pray that God's kingdom would come is to yearn for that future life of justice and peace that only God can bring when all unite to serve him and to associate themselves with him and with his holiness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those four words, thy will be done, C.S. Lewis called the, the sledgehammer of the Lord's Prayer. Whenever I say that in the Lord's Prayer, I always see that sledgehammer coming down. Thy will be done. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And unless we are profoundly certain that God is a good, gracious, and loving Father, we'll never be able to say, Thy will be done. But only if we trust God as Father can we ask for Him to bear our troubles with patience and grace. And in fact, Thy will be done is the one part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus Himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but your will be done. He prays that under circumstances far more crushing than any of us will ever face. But he submitted to his Father's will rather than to to follow his own desires and his doing so saved us. And that's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust that being unified with him, we can call God our Father. So far in the prayer, everything's been about God. The starting point of the prayer is to speak about God, his holiness, his coming kingdom. But now Jesus turns our minds to our own needs. Give us this day our daily bread. The Greek word here for daily only appears in Greek literature here, and it has something to do with immediacy. It's an immediate need. Think back to the parable again, the parable of the man who requests bread. He needs bread then for his friend. He can't wait for Publix to open in the morning. He needs bread now to honor his responsibility to provide food for his, for his friend. Give us this day our immediate bread, our daily bread. Not five years worth of bread so that we don't have to think about God and relying on God for another five years. But give us what we need immediately because pretty soon there's going to be another immediately. And I must remember where all my immediate needs are provided for our. We can't forget our dependence on God. And then Jesus tells us to say, forgive us our trespasses. That's the part we like. And then he says, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And that's the part that maybe we don't so much like. But Jesus tightly links our relationship with God to our relationship with others. And anger and hatred and bitterness towards others hinders our relationship with God. And if we've not seen the depths of our own sin and sought radical forgiveness from God for our own failures, we'll be unable to forgive and to seek the good of those who've wronged us. 
We see this as a challenge to our pride, but it's really a test of spiritual reality. We must examine our own hearts, and where we find anger and bitterness and hatred, we must work towards forgiveness. The first step there is to ask God for help and grace so that you can forgive others based on God's forgiveness in Christ. But you must understand what that word forgiveness means. It comes right out of the business world. We talk about forgiving debts, and that's exactly the language. When we've been wrong, we feel that there's a debt owed to us. And to forgive someone says, you don't owe me anymore. I'm breaking, breaking that demand on you. You don't owe me anymore. Now, you may owe a debt to God. God's forgiven your sins, but if you haven't accepted forgiveness in Jesus Christ, then you have that debt you may owe God for your sin. I can't speak for God here. Maybe you committed a crime, and you owe a debt to society. And maybe you need to show up before a judge and a jury and honor that debt to society. But as far as I'm concerned, you don't owe anything to me. I don't seek any punishment from you. God might, society might, but I don't. You don't owe me anymore. And it's only when we realize the depths of our own fallenness and the sins of our own lives that we can find the grace to forgive others. And then speaking of sin, Jesus turns us to the future. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A lot of brows have been furled over that lead us not into temptation. A good question is, why would God lead us into temptation? Well, God doesn't lead us into temptation. The key word there is into. Because we're tempted and tested as a part of experience. And as God leads us in his life, he leads us past tempting times, testing times. But God does not do the tempting. He doesn't put evil desires in our heart that would require there to be evil desires in God's heart. But he does bring us into the presence of many tests and temptations. And in fact, every step we take in life is a step in the presence of temptation. There's no moment of our lives that's not a moment of temptation, a moment when disobedience and unbelief is not a possibility. But remember, even Jesus was tempted. And even we're told, led by the Holy Spirit, to be tempted. But of course, he did not sin. What it teaches us to pray, what Jesus teaches us to pray, is that the temptation does not take us in. When Jesus talks about being tempted, he makes a distinction between being tempted and leaving, being going into temptation. Going into temptation means giving in to evil desires, to sinful desires. Jesus thought that, taught that to enter into temptation is to fall into sin through our own sinful desires. Today and every day we stand before numerous temptations. And that's what life is, endless choices between belief and unbelief, obedience and disobedience. But as God leads us past these temptations, don't let us go into these temptations and deliver us from evil, the evil that we have within us, the evil that we have without us, and from evil forces that seek to draw us away. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, it's a pretty good pattern for prayer to take each phrase as they come to mind, to consider it, to expand on it, to apply it to your own lives, 
And many Christians have followed that method of prayer, taking the Lord's Prayer and phrase by phrase, applying it to the needs of the immediate situation. But the whole thing starts with the key part, Father. A good Father, a gracious Father, a Father who wants to meet his child's needs. And that is, of course, what Jesus keeps coming back to in this section of fathers. Jesus says, for example, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, does this mean that whatever we ask from God, we will get? No. If a child asks a father for an egg and the father knows that the child is allergic to eggs, the good father doesn't give the child an egg. The good father says, let's find something else for you to eat because I know that's bad for you. Note very carefully the only certain promise that Jesus says the father will give you if you ask him is to receive the Holy Spirit. I think that's interesting. Perhaps a whole other sermon needs to be devoted to that topic. But the one thing he promises, says the Father will send the Holy Spirit to those who ask. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible we're told that we don't receive everything we ask and we're told why. In James's epistle, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You ask wrongly to spend it on selfish desires. I saw the headline when I checked the news today, Mega Millions is up to $790 million. When I wrote the sermon yesterday, I had right $660 million, and when I saw the headline, I had to go back and edit it. I don't know a lot about the lottery, but I know lots more people are going to be praying to win the Mega Millions than are actually going to win it. But Jesus does say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. We're told this and I think our tendency is to think, wow, what can I get? But you know the old saying, be careful what you ask for. Because you just might get it. And most of us I'm sure have heard stories in the newspapers or wherever, of lottery winners who win big in the lottery and then within a few years are in a much worse financial situation than they were before. And yet Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. I think what this problem, what this promise means is that when we ask, seek and knock, we always receive and find behind the open door a loving father, a good father, a gracious father who wants only the best for his child. I'd like to close with the collect for the day, which Father Alf has already read to us, but I'd like to read it one more time, have you consider it. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire 
or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.